what is it you do? He still doesn't understand. And I, I asked him the other week, I said, what is it you think I do? He said, you talk to people and have a nice cup of tea with them. You know, that's, 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 my dad's, that's my dad's understanding of therapy. Welcome back to Dear Shandy, listeners. Hello, Andy. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm very excited for today's I guest. Are. I was just telling him before we got rolling that I spotted his book at the mm -hmm. airport and True I picked story. it up and I read it and I enjoyed it. So even though sometimes our hot topic guests get pitched to us, in this case, I was, I really, I sicked our team on him. Yeah, you went out <laughs> and found him. Yeah, I went out <laughs> and found him, exactly. So our guest today is a renowned psychotherapist based in London. He has over 25 years experience in both physical and mental health and is a former National Health Services Mental Health Clinical Lead. Prior to becoming a therapist, I just have to add this because I think it's so interesting, he spent a decade working with the dying as a clinical nurse specialist in palliative care, which I think adds a dimension to his mm -hmm. perspective. And he is the author of 10 Times Happier, the globally acclaimed and Sunday Times bestseller 10 to Zen, and most recently, How to Be Your Own <clears throat> Sorry, I've got cobwebs. How to be your own therapist. We are so delighted to be joined today by Owen O'Kane. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm laughing at you choking on the word therapy. <laughs> it, it's what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, therapy actually for me is a relatively new thing. I first started speaking with my therapist during the pandemic, I think like so many people. But just before we got rolling, you said that you feel the UK is a little behind the US in terms of the taboo around. We are, we're getting there. I mean, I, I grew up in Ireland, but I'm, I'm London based these days with work. And um, when I was doing this book, it was really interesting. It's my third book. And when we were kind of discussing the title and with what direction we go, I had a really good idea about the concept. I said, I'd really love, I'd love to talk about therapy very openly. And there were all sorts of conversations about how relevant it would be. Would the word therapy put people off? Mm. would it be distracting and so the more it wasn't necessarily pushback but the more resistance I got I thought you know something this is what I do I wholeheartedly believe in therapy and I wholeheartedly believe that most people can self-therapy but they don't realize it so why would I kind of collude with stigma and not do it so it pushed me and it made me more determined and I thought no I do believe that ultimately your goal as a therapist is to make people their own therapist so that's the book I'm going to do and you know it was the right decision. Hmm. I love that message you have, which is you don't necessarily want your client to be completely reliant on you for life. The goal no. is for them to not need you one no, day. Absolutely. A friend of mine's joked in London. He said to me, he said, this book should be called How to Make Yourself Redundant. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Do you have like like therapists outside your window with pitchforks? <laughs> A few therapists have challenged me and said, people cannot do it. They can't do their own therapy. You know, you can't tell people, but you know, if, of course they can, you know, that is the job. A good therapist okay. will want to see, they'll want to see their client move on. I mean, I say that to every client when I finish with them, great working with you, but I hope I don't see you again. Mm -hmm. And I mean that in the best possible way, you know, because you don't want to see a client coming back. Now, of course it happens and people do come back because life gets in the way and stuff happens, but I don't want clients with me for a long period of time. I work in very short term fixed blocks of time because I think it motivates the client 
to work mm. harder. Oh, to have a sort of light at the end of the tunnel. So Absolutely. If I say to people, yeah, yeah, just come along for five years, it'll be cool. It's like, no, they're not going to put the work in. They're just going to come and chill and <laughs> hang out <laughs> and have a chat. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I think, yeah, you'll get a different opinion depending on who you talk to about that. That's interesting. So before we get going, you've actually already answered my first question. Sorry, is, I'm Irish. Which, I'm Irish. No, I talk a lot. <laughs> no, it's great. I love it when that happens. But before we get really going into the book and the concepts around the book, it during my research on you, I was just totally wowed by your story and you just have an interesting background and i just think that it really adds dimension to yeah. your perspective like I, I said the reality is no one has it all together no therapist has it all together we're all sort of works in progress and i really do believe that to be true and i think look i can put myself out there as the expert with all of the training and experience and that's true to your point i've got years of experience under my belt which really serves me well but i've also got a story that got me to where I am today. And the story actually is a huge part of why I do the work I do. You know, in a nutshell, my, my core story was I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland during a period known as the Troubles. So, you know, it was, it's a pretty scary place to grow up. And there was a lot of trauma. And, you know, my TED talk is called Bombs, Bullets, Bullying in a Piano. So, mm -hmm. the, you know, you probably get the context. There's a lot of bombs, there's a lot of bullets. Mm -hmm. There was also a lot of bullying. You know, I, you know, I was a kid who was a bit different, you know, turns out I was gay, but at the time didn't realize that, but I was playing piano. I was doing different stuff. The other kids picked up on that. So I had a pretty tough time mm -hmm. growing up. And also, you know, I'm Irish Catholic and, and gay. So like, you know, there, there's a formula for shame in mm -hmm. itself when you put the three together. So I kind of, it was only when I left Ireland and I moved to London and suddenly you start to find your feet and you kind of start to, to work out who you are. I suddenly realized, God, a lot of that was way tougher than I realized. There was a lot of fear. There yeah. was a lot of judgment. There was a lot of uncertainty. So I guess really I often describe my, my background story as the best training ground for my understanding of anxiety and trauma. Because, you know, in some ways I've walked a walk. I get it. You know, I understand human struggle. So I guess really my backstory plays a big part in the work and what I do. And um, and I use it all of the time unapologetically because without it, I couldn't do my job. Oh, I think that's wonderful. Really paying it forward. And I just have to touch. You just have the best accent in the world. Oh, it's the best. It's great. <laughs> I do. I should do commercials. You, you, you should. should. You absolutely should. ASMR, do, do anything. It's funny. I, I lived over in Germany for a few years and my boyfriend at the time was Scottish. And when I would go visit him in Scotland, I'd be like, oh, I want to go to Ireland. I've never been. He's like, no, we're not going to Ireland because you're going to run away with some Irish man. You're going to like that accent That's way too what much. It always happens. No one leaves <laughs> Ireland without running away with an Irish Yeah, man. exactly. Okay. So the idea of, I mean, can we call this self-therapy? We can, right? This would be self-therapy. Yeah, abso ab absolutely. What would you say the goal is? Is the goal happiness, fulfillment, I think what, what I see in clinical practice all of the time, it doesn't matter who I work with. I can have a Hollywood A-lister in my office in front of me who have all of the successes and trappings in the world imaginable, you know, and they, they, they have it all. And, and I can have somebody else who's doing an, a regular everyday job. But it's the, the really interesting thing for me is that when you have a human being in the room in front of you, human struggle is human struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think very often what most people are trying to do is they're just kind of trying to break free of the stuff that doesn't serve them well, but they don't know how to articulate that and they don't know what that means. And I think that, you know, some people say, I just want to be happier. 
Some people yeah. say, I just want to be more peaceful. Some people will say, I want to understand myself a bit better. It will play out in different ways for different people. But I kind of think ultimately for me is often we can have this. One of the things I talk about in the book is we can have these kind of rehearsed narratives about what we want to be. You know, I want to be better. I want to be more successful. I want to be bigger, whatever the context may be. Mm. But often that can just be rehearsed script. And, and we very often don't really stop to work out God, what, what is it that drives me? What is it that, you know, gives me purpose in my life? What is it that matters to me? And I don't think we stop often enough to to kind of answer those questions. And I think what I try and do is I really encourage people in the book, I'm not interested in your rehearsed story or the polite version. I'm interested in the raw version of who you are and what what moves you forward. I mean, look, without boring you too much with a, the kind of psychobabble, but, you know, we're, we're as human beings, we're driven by three processes at any one time, threat, drive and soothe. So threat mm. mechanisms are very much, their anxiety mechanisms are protective. They're about keeping us safe. Very, very helpful some of the time. But then when when anxiety starts to raise above the parapet, it's a really uncomfortable way to live. But most of the population are in a hypervigilant alert state a lot of the time. Mm. So that's kind of one mode of operating. The other mode is drive where people believe that they want to be more, they should be more, they need more. So it's all of the external validation stuff. You know, I'll be happy when I get the car. Mm-hmm. I'll be happy when I get the house. I'll be happy when I'm more famous. You know, we 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 hear it play out a million times a day on social media. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a drive and an ambition. It's a really good, healthy thing. But when it becomes the dominant factor in your life, it's problematic. Mm-hmm. The other mechanism then is your soothing mechanism. And that's a part of you that can can deal with the emotions, the part of you that can quieten the noise in, the, in your mind, the, the part of you that can self-regulate, the part of you that knows who you are and can self-accept. And I think most people crash land into adulthood with a highly activated threat system, mm-hmm. a highly activated drive system, yeah. but an almost redundant soothing system. So I guess yeah. really to answer your question in a very roundabout way, my goal as a therapist a lot of the time is to try to teach people how to activate that self-soothing system because when they get that activated, then all of the other parts of their life tend to fall into balance. Oh, wow. Wow. What, what an answer. I love that. Does that answer the question? No, it I do does. It, you know, I love how you word crash land into adulthood. Yeah. Because when you get to adulthood, you're kind of like... Yeah, it yeah. happens before you know what happens. Yeah, and you're kind of eager to get there. You know, you want to get out of school, you want to make money, yeah, you, yeah. Want to, you want yeah. to like see the world and do all the things and accomplish things. But you're really... And, and in school, you know, you study up to qualify to do all of those things, yeah, but you're yeah. emotionally... You know, oh, you right. really have very few tools. Yeah, you're, no, ta- you're taught how to do the things, but you're not taught how to be an adult. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. And it, it, it's spot on. My, my first therapist was in my early 20s. Now, the irony of all of this is I'll just give you a bit of context because it still makes me laugh. I was just coming out literally at the time. So I'd been in a monastery for three years. I decided I was going to be a priest in my late teens. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So I, and I did that for three years and had the most incredible experience, you know, never regret the experience, but it's kind of where it all started off for me. And then sort of while I was, I sort of had suspicions, but when I got to three years in, I thought, I'm going to have to deal with this, you know, this sexuality thing I haven't really dealt with. Long story short, I decided I wasn't going to continue on that path. I was going to come out and do different things. But I was also going to come out literally. And um, when I was coming out, a friend of mine at the time said, look, why don't you just go and talk to your therapist? And, you know, 
it'll help. And I said, I'm not really sure what I'll talk about, but I'll go. So when I get to meet my my therapist, I was given an address, contacted, got a name. Her name is Kathleen. And um, I got a name and an address. And when I get there, um, I end up in a convent. Amazing. Like I, you know, I, and I thought, why am I in a convent? I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to talk about being gay and stuff. And I've and I've just I've just left a monastery. How have I ended up in a convent? So anyway, I knock on this door and lo and behold, a nun is your therapist. You should honestly, there should be a movie of your life. I thought Horace Escola. So so I get there and I just kind of and she's what a proper nun. I mean lovely. She didn't have the deal and stuff, but she had the uniform. <laughs> I got bad news for you. <laughs> so the interesting thing is I go into her and I I did a lot of, if I'm being honest, I did a lot of bullshit and at the beginning, you know. She was like, oh, why are you here? And I was kind of like going around in circles and stuff. And everything was <laughs> oh, you know, <laughs> work is hard, <laughs> stressed yeah, out all Exactly, the time. a bit stressed, yeah, don't like public speaking, you know, all the bullshit you can imagine. I sort of, I'd come up with stories for her. <laughs> Andy loves your story. <laughs> I mean, this is like straight out of a, an absurdist comedy. It, it really is yeah. a movie script. Sorry, continue. Uh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, you're a comic, you love this stuff. So then she said to me, uh, so I, I, I rambled for about 20 minutes telling or all of the things that were right with me and she very intuitively said um she said I've, i noticed i've asked you a few times how you are and you keep telling me that you're fine you know mm. and i said yeah yeah i'm fine and she said oh that's interesting she said because i've done this job a long time and i'm looking at you and i'm listening to you and it doesn't feel to me that you're fine it feels like you're sad and the minute she said that it was a, i mean it was an interesting thing for me actually i could almost feel this internal it was like a balloon burst. And, you know, when you just feel like this internal deflation. Oh, I would start she's, bawling. She's, she's got me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's got me. And I could feel this lump in my throat, which I couldn't stop. Mm. And then she said, are you okay? And then suddenly I couldn't speak. And it was like, you know, oh, this wow. avalanche of emotion that came out and stuff. So anyway, I, I said, oh, there's just something I really need to talk about. Now, at this point, I hadn't come out, hadn't talked to anyone about some of the shame stuff. So anyway, I was kind of building up to this, you know, big, big kind of coming out thing. So eventually I said to her, look, there is something. I said, um, you know, I think I, I think I might be gay. And she just paused and she said, oh, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> I said, <laughs> I said, well, yeah. And she said, Pathetic. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What a story. And she said, I thought you were going to say you'd kill someone. She said, I was like, oh. I was waiting for, I mean, it was brilliant. It was the most this cathartic thing. Is because, great. I mean, I'd done all sorts of crazy stuff. I'd gone, I, there's a place in, in France called Lourdes. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah. It's like a pil- pilgrimage where people mm. go to be healed. So I don't want to, in any way, slag it off because people get a lot from faith and religion and spirituality. But I went at the time, a good Catholic boy, just before meeting the nun for therapy, I went along thinking, okay, I'll go and get cured of the, I'll get cured of this. Mm. Why don't I go to Lourdes? So I go in, I queued up for about an hour to get in. I sit there and I think, okay, I would like healed of my sexuality. That would, you know, that would Mm. make me happy. And as I've been put into the water, all I can remember is these two French guys in these vest tops, huge big arms, huge big muscles. (laughs) All I can remember are these two blokes. (laughs) It's like slow motion, like. Nice oh, music. It's something funny. really symbolic about that. Oh man, that's Just crazy. Dipping me into the water. And wow. I can remember them like, you know, my head coming out again. And I remember thinking in that moment, oh my God, 
if I can check out a cute guy in this moment in time, it's, there's no yeah, chance you're of done healing. For. And actually, oh. the, but the, the irony was, you know, it was a big part of healing. Now, I'm, I'm talking about that because I think the whole premise of this book is about the heart of it is often about self-acceptance because I think often we don't like who we are. And I think often we struggle with parts of who we are. Mm. And we work really hard to push that down, you know, and it's such an important part. So building on that, you talk in the book about how many negative thoughts we have a day. First of all, how many thoughts we have and then how many yeah, yeah. negative thoughts we have. Yeah, and it yeah. was in the five figures, I believe. Well, the, the neuroscientists tell us that we have about 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day uh-huh. on average. That That's kind of what they equate. Now, yeah. where it gets more troublesome is they also equate that about 60 to 70% of those thoughts are critical uh, in nature. Why do you think that is? Why aren't we like, oh, instead I'll think about how great things are going for me. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good point because I think as we've developed and the more we've moved away from simplicity, then the more anxious we've become. Mm-hmm. And of yeah. course that then evolved. And often these, what, what we term negative thoughts or critical thoughts, I mean, often it's a part of us. It's like a protective part that often comes out. So our mind will often produce a narrative and a story when it's in a state of threat that can you almost say, don't do that. Guys, don't do another podcast that might fail. Don't mm-hmm. take on this new opportunity. Our mm-hmm. mind's always kind of constantly looking for problems, not as a means of getting in the way of our life, but a means of trying to protect us and to keep us safe or preventing harm. Mm. So instead of treating our critic as an enemy, I kind of say, no, 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 treat it as an ally. It's a helpful force. It thinks it's doing you good. It's just got a very exaggerated response. And your job is to learn to negotiate with it and get to know it. Mm. And almost kind of rather than see it as a dark enemy, you get to know your critic. You know, you learn to laugh at it and you can almost get to see how it plays out. And then it works for you in a very, very different way. It's interesting. I feel like the whole world has like mental eczema. You know what eczema is? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like your body is just like overproducing an immune response to a perceived threat that's not really there. Like even just <laughs> yeah. like some... I was I okay. Andy Andy's the king of analogies, but this That's is a like, good one. This, this is a great is push, one. This is pushing the limits. Wie geht's heute, Andy? Muy bien, mi esposa. We have been practicing our Spanish and German, respectively, mm-hmm. yes. using the Babbel language learning app. Ten minutes a day. Ten minutes a day. Let's talk about that. That's insane. That's one tenth of the amount of mindless scrolling people do on average. That goes by in. A ten jiffy. Minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so fine. 10 minutes, which is nothing. Yeah. You can be having a conversation in whatever language you're working on in as little as three weeks. Can you think of a better way to be spending your time on your phone? Hold on a second. <laughs> no. No. It's not a trick question. The answer is no, indeed I no. I wanted to put some thought to it. What is cooler than being able to speak more than one language? When I meet people who can speak multiple languages, yeah. I immediately, they could be the most annoying people I've ever met. Yeah. I immediately feel enamored. No, same. I I'm, I have more respect for them than I did before because it shows like a culturedness, an open-mindedness, a curiosity, a work ethic. It's a superpower. It is. They're like a, a very low-level superhero. <laughs> it's like imagine you just land on some planet and no one, obviously no one speaks, I am I, assuming there's other people on this planet for some reason, and no one speaks your language mm-hmm. and someone's like, hold on. I got this. And they just speak the language. Yeah. It's not that much different. Yeah. It's just an intergalactic language versus a language <laughs> on Earth. 
And I love how their lessons are created by 150 language experts versus AI. And above all, Babbel makes it fun. They're useful conversations when you do the lesson. It's stuff you would actually use. It's like, oh, I'm at the grocery store. I'm having a conversation with a friend. It's not too academic. You know what I mean? Right. It's really conversational. It's useful. Yeah, it's like a game that I win every day. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Dear Shandy. Again, that's Babbel.com slash Dear Shandy for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel language for life. So Charlene, we had an unexpected visitor a few days ago, Mr. Mouse. Yes, Mr. Mouse. And why did Mr. Mouse grace us with his presence? Well, because we did a bad thing. So we love our Lomi. It's our electric countertop composter that turns food waste into dirt in a matter of hours with the push of a button. And the Lomi has changed our lives. Our garbage bags, when we take them out, are way lighter. We go through fewer of them, so that's less plastic waste. Obviously, in the long term, there's f- less waste in landfill turning into methane, which is a very harmful greenhouse gas. But we ran out of our Lomi Pod compost accelerator, mm-hmm. which you put in, you put one tablet in with yeah, each. Looks row. like an Alka-Seltzer. And we ran out. We were in between days. It was just a couple of days. Yeah. And it says a lot that when we weren't using a Lomi and all that food waste was instead going in the garbage, just sitting there. Sitting there, just yeah. stewing. Stewing in its own juices. Yeah. We had a mouse. Yeah. The first time we'd seen the mouse ever since we got the Lomi. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Super cute, but we don't <laughs> we don't necessarily need him here. Yeah. It's not just mice. No. It's roaches. It's bacteria. Why do you think it smells? Mm. It doesn't smell just because it decides let's start smelling. <laughs> There's like billions of bacteria it's eating like, it. Let's start smelling. Yeah, it's, yeah, time. it's time. We've been in the garbage long enough. And your plants love it. Yes, because it is soil. Mm. It is soil that can go into your plants. Mm. And as a matter of fact, I've literally tapped out on my garden, my rooftop garden, because yeah. we don't have an in-ground garden. Yeah. So I, there's a limited amount of soil I can keep putting in my plants. <laughs> yeah. So I've had to resort to going outside. I have been loamying all the trees <laughs> on the block. You're like... Uh, I'm Johnny Lomi Suit. <laughs> and those garbage bags, when we take them out to the garbage are about a quarter of the weight and they don't smell and we take them out about a third as much. And you know what I haven't had in many months? What? Is a nice, long, greasy streak (laughs) going from our door to the garbage. Mm -hmm. So whether you want to make a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash Shandy and use promo code Shandy to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi, L-O-M-I dot com slash Shandy and use promo code Shandy at checkout. And we thank Lomi for sponsoring this episode. No, but I do do think that that's what's happening is that we are supposed to just be sort of like waking up at the sunrise looking for some seeds or nuts or, you know, you know, maybe a yeah, little yeah. rabbit here and there if it's, <laughs> we're lucky and then making a kid and getting a, a roof overhead and the whole thing and anything above and beyond that creates neurosis and yeah. i feel like you know one of the reasons why therapy has come to the forefront and become so ubiquitous is because we are just going down this path of more and more complication more and more yeah. than we're thinking more and more isolation more neuroses and i wonder sometimes if um you know, based on this discussion of this 70% of the, these thoughts are like threat thoughts, negative thoughts. I wonder if one day therapy will be outstripped. Like it won't be enough to <laughs> fix the world's problems. Like we'll go too far down the hole and it will just be a cycle of trying to stop ourselves. I feel like that what he just said says a lot about him. <laughs> it does. <laughs> 
it's a really interesting thought because that that in itself is a war. It's an anxious thought. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. You know. <laughs> yeah, I've been around a long time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of you know. Come what, at what, me. Come at me. <laughs> but it, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because an anxious thought will always start off with what if. Yeah. You know, it's all, it all would start off with what if. Mm. And I guess, kind of, you know, my, my hope is that I, I, I do believe, look, the, the bottom line is we, we get in our own way. Mm. You know, I, I could say that confidently with every client I work with, you know, or every time I go and do a corporate talk or whatever the context might be, I watch people get in their own way. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong, look, difficult stuff happens to people all of the time. And people have difficult stories. And I acknowledge that. So it's not to minimize it in any way, shape or form. But I guess really most people, it's, you know, it's human nature. Most people want fixed or they want sorted out that they want the remedy quickly, you know, make me better. I often see clients get frustrated, you know, mm. when you give them the news, actually, no, I'm not going to fix you. I'm, I'll, I'll work with you and I'll push you and I'll get mm -hmm. you there, but I'm not going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So it's about helping people get out of their own way. And I guess really, if you simplified it down into the, you know, a really simple common denominator, people get fixated on what's been. And they just will not let go of the difficult stuff that's happened because they believe it shouldn't have happened mm. or they fixate on the not knowing. You know, if you look at a definition of anxiety, it's an intolerance of uncertainty. Mm. So pe people oh. get fixated on not Ooh. knowing. I need to know. I must know. No, that's not how it is. We're not designed to know. We're designed, you know, I, I don't want to sound too cliched or over mindfulness, but we're, we're designed to be present. We're designed mm -hmm. to be here, making yeah. the best of now. So... Let's start at the very beginning then. If someone is listening to this and they either... I thought you, I thought you meant the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, this is a warm-up. Are you ready, ready to go? And action. <laughs> so in terms of self-therapy, how would one begin? Let's say someone's listening to this and, you know, they've toyed with the idea of therapy, but the idea of finding the right therapist who costs the right amount, who they feel connected with is just too daunting. It's not accessible yeah. to them. Or maybe they're even in therapy, but, you know, there's all the days in between their sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, I know this, of course, you wrote a whole book on it. It's how can I ask you this? But how would one start? I mean, it, in, in the book, what I've done is I've broken it down into two parts. So the first half of the book is like, but, but you know, before you can go anywhere, you need to, you need to understand who you are. You need to really have a truthful, honest look at yourself because we all deliver the the polished, rehearsed, the, we all deliver the version of us that we want the world to see that, you know, we go on Instagram every day and we see that, mm. you know, that that's kind of how we're hardwired at the moment, you know, let's deliver the version I think is acceptable. But often that isn't a real version, you know, often the real versions of who we are come with a whole mixed bag of amazing, brilliant stuff. But it also comes with stuff that's difficult. It comes with fear, anxiety, loneliness, rejection, you know, we all come with stories. And I think, Everyone clings to the good stuff. Everybody wants the good emotions, the feel good moments, the highs, but nobody wants to go near the darker stuff when actually the darker stuff is, is your guiding point. That's the stuff that's trying to teach you the whole time. It's trying to guide you. That's mm. the stuff that's trying to get you to that point of balance. So I guess in therapy, what I teach people to do is, you know, go back and go over your story. Mm. Look at the difficult parts of your story. Make It's kind of almost like doing a jigsaw. You know, I try and get clients to think about how does your story help you understand who you are today? For those moments when you get angry, when somebody talks over you, for those moments when you get really upset, when someone undermines you, you need to understand why that happens to you. 
and mm. why you're triggered, because most of our everyday stuff is never, I'd say probably in the majority of cases, when we get upset in everyday life, often it's never really about what's going on in the here and now. Mm -hmm. It's often triggering old stuff that we haven't resolved. Right. So you map it together. And I think then you can almost see relief, you know, in therapy, you see in relief for people think, oh God, yeah, I get it now. So it's kind of almost like you need that coin to drop where they say, okay, this is why I struggle. So it's kind of like, okay. So and that would make the person be more, I guess, more self-accepting and more self-compassionate when they see actually most of this wasn't your fault. Mm -hmm. A quick question though, though. So the first half of the book is around that, you know, that self-exploration. Yeah, yeah. Which can be very challenging for a lot of people, especially to have objectivity. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that there are any personality types that might struggle mm -hmm. with this more than others? Mm -hmm. well, look, I, yeah, I make it really clear in the book. If it's overwhelming or it's too big, you know, mm -hmm. look, let, let's be honest. There are people who will need individual support. And my yeah. hope is that the book gets them, moves them in that direction. So I say very clearly, if you're overwhelmed or it feels too big to manage independently, or even with a friend, then you get professional help. That That's a non-negotiable but i guess you know look if we personalize stuff which i think we all do if i take my past personally then i become the victim you know when actually the difficult parts of my past yeah i was bullied and there was a lot of difficult stuff happened but actually it was never really personal it was just i grew up in a culture where there was a lack of understanding Mm. And there was a lack of awareness. So that didn't mean that it was personal against me. It just meant that I grew up in circumstances where it it was it was difficult for difference to be tolerated. That wasn't personal. The fact that I grew up with a lot of violence and trauma around me, that wasn't personal. It just happened to be my circumstances. But when we personalize it, then we fall into being the victim. Mm. Whereas actually when you're able to step out of it and take it less personal, even though it feels very personal because it's your stuff, and it hurts and it feels difficult when you're able to kind of depersonalize it a little bit and stand back and think, but a lot of this wasn't my fault, particularly the early stuff. We mm. move in the opposite direction. We move into the adult stuff. We say, yeah, but you're not the kid anymore. So if we're yeah. still dealing with the childhood stuff as an adult and taking no responsibility, then the job becomes, but now it's the time to take responsibility. So it's, it, it, it's a kind of bartering act. Yeah, I mean, because I can't help but think, and maybe this is the negative Nancy in me, that there are people out there who don't take responsibility and who tend Absolutely. to, you know, play the victim. And I just can't help but wonder if that kind of person would not be mm. capable of... They, I don't think they seek therapy or they, oh, they, maybe. They, they laugh at it. Absolutely. If I meet people who are resistant and they think, oh, this is bullshit, or this is rubbish, or this is all psychobabble. Because look, I, I sort of get that because there's a lot of, let's be honest about it, there's a lot of fluff out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fairy dust. And, it, you know, that's not what I deliver. And it's not what I'm about. But I kind of think even if someone's cynical, or they're, they, they reject it, I kind of think, well, that, that, that in itself is quite revealing. And actually, if I'm with somebody, or I'm working with somebody, and that's what I get at the beginning, and I sometimes do, it's a brilliant inroad because you can work with the resistance because if they're going to resist therapy and they're going to resist something helpful, they'll be doing that in other parts of their life. Mm. So it's a really good inroad. Okay. So question based on that, you talk about how in Ireland it's like, instead of how are you today? It's what's your story? Yeah. 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 And yeah, exactly. I love that concept. And then you really roll with that. And it's about coming to terms with your story, writing out your story, reflecting on your story. If someone were to write out their story 
And it really sounds like they are the victim of their story. You know, like exactly what you're saying. Bad things were done to them. Is it automatic then that they're looking at it through the wrong lens? No, absolutely. It's a really good point you're making. So I think, look, if it becomes clear that someone believes, okay, I've been victimized, I've been treated badly, life is unfair. Now, here, here's the reality. That may be true because we, we, we know that awful things happen in life and life can be unfair and things, you know, things that things happen that should never have happened. So you never, ever take that away from someone. So if I'm working with somebody and they come with all of this stuff, oh my God, you've got to give them the right to air that and to express that and to get that out and to release that in some way, shape or form. Mm. But I guess what I'm interested in is, and I say this to every client, this is a non-negotiable. It's the only contract I ever have for a client. I often talk about the importance of reclaiming life. You have the option to stick to stick with that narrative that I'm powerless, that I'm hope, you know, I'm hopeless, that this is all terrible. You have the option to stay with that narrative, but I guess good therapy is about, or you can make a decision to reclaim your life mm-hmm. and to salvage or to salvage what you can from this. So my, my, my only contract with people is I'll say at the beginning, look, I'm hopeful because I am, because I see transition and transformations happen every single day of my career. So I'm hopeful that this can be better than it is today. And I mean that wholeheartedly for most people. It is. It's going to be better than it is today. Things are going to improve for you. You are going to find a breakthrough. So my contract with or my clients will be, I'm hopeful that that's going to happen. But all I ask of you at the beginning is that you allow me to hold on to the hope for now. Mm. And in this process that we're going to do together, I will hand over bits to you. And I've never once had a client reject that as a contract. Never. Mm. Mm. In the second half of your book, I love this. It's about 10 very precise minutes a day. It's very intentional, these 10 minutes of self-therapy. And what I love about this is I think 10 minutes is doable. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not too daunting. No. Do you mind giving a a brief rundown of what those 10 minutes look like? A preview. Well, this is kind of where the, the self-therapy part of it comes in, really. I mean, the, the, the first half is the kind of the, the foundational work, really. Mm-hmm. You could call it that. Second half is, uh, okay, well, look, how do you therapy yourself through your day? Now, that doesn't mean that you're nasal-given or you're introspective or you're suddenly analyzing the shit out of your life. I mean, that's not what it's about, but it's about actually how, how can you, because like, you know, I was talking about crash landing into adulthood, but most people also crash land into their day. You know, they get up, they're out of bed, you know, straight on it, work, kids, commitments. Mm-hmm. They get to the end of the day, nothing's been dealt with, nothing's been processed. There's been no space. And I guess we just get entangled. If we're not creating space between what goes on in our lives and we're just not quiet in the mind, then we're going to struggle. That is a, you know, that is unquestionable. We will struggle as human beings if we're not creating space. So I, I, the 10 minutes was really about, because I felt that was workable for most Mm -hmm. people. You give people longer meditation programs for 30, 45 minutes a day, they'll drop out because they haven't got the time to do it. So I, you know, consciously went for short, short bursts. And I broke it down into ready, steady and reset. So the ready is getting ready for your day. The steady is the middle of the day when you might be wobbling or starting to digress Mm -hmm. off track a little bit. And the end of the day is uh, the resetting. You know, we we carry so much stuff to bed. You know, we carry so much unresolved stuff. Most clients I meet carry countless worries at the end of their day. So one Mm -hmm. example would be 
for the end of the day section, I create a thing called worry time, which is often used in cognitive behavioral therapies. And it's like, okay, let, before you go to bed, list the 20, 10, 15, 20 things that are really worrying you at the moment. And most people will do it in an instant. You know, they'll, they'll go straight <laughs> to it. No right problem. They're ready it. to go. Yeah, they're, they're ready. It's, it's kind of automatic. And interestingly, when you sit down and say, okay, let's look at the 20 worries, how many of these are directly in your control today? Most of the time it's one, most of the time none. So then the negotiation becomes, okay, what would it be like for you to accept that, okay, you don't have power control over this today. There isn't a decision today. There isn't an answer today. Would it be okay to park that worry? That doesn't mean we're avoiding it or running away from it, but would it be okay to park it and leave that be? So I guess then when you train people and you help them to do that, then they, they're not taking all of these worries to bed unprocessed. Then they're not sleeping properly because the subconscious will then start to try and process and deal with stuff. People then wake up exhausted because they haven't slept properly. So you're really teaching people the the art of letting go more. Mm. Thinking it's I'm acknowledging the difficult stuff, but I'm not going to get fixated on it. What about doing the inverse of that? Because what I've found in my life is I I had a much easier time smelling the roses earlier in my life. I found it more difficult to sit with the good things and just be like yeah. ah. Things are good in this area, at least. Yeah, I find it much more difficult. Like it's an actual process, like work for like me just, to even get to the point. Just to take inventory. Just at to all. take inventory of the good things in my life and to really experience it. I remember distinctly. I remember times, specific moments in my distant past where I would just sit there. I could be anywhere. I could be driving in a car. Yeah. I could be walking in the street. I could be laying in bed, and I would just have this very present and tangible experience of sitting with the good things in my life and feeling yeah. it almost like yeah. a soundtrack was playing over it too. Yeah. It was just perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now yeah, I yeah. find it so difficult. I'm wondering if maybe like not, not to take away from what you said, which I think that's fantastic, but what if you did the exact opposite? What if instead of focusing on the problems and which ones are in your control and whatnot, what about just taking inventory of all the really good things in your life that you may not be appreciating? Like the sort of the shadow of what you're talking well, about. He does it's talk really about that in the book. And I do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I do. And I think that was a really important thing to do because you're spot on in what you say. It's, it's really important to understand the mechanics of, of struggle and challenge, but it's also equally important to, to understand the mechanics of being more present and, and appreciating, and I talk about gratitude and why, you know, we, we talk, you know, gratitude's thrown around a lot mm. as a, as, as sure. a phrase, but actually there's a real kind of neuroscientific evidence that actually been in a grateful state is quite good for the chemical state of your mind. And it helps neurotransmitters and we produce chemicals that are helpful for our mood and our anxiety levels. So all of this stuff comes with, you know, it, it, it's, it's light and shade really. It's kind of, let's look at the difficult stuff, but actually also let's look at the the value in some of what you've just described. And I think also what you said there about God, the older you get, the older we all get, it becomes much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think we become more aware of the challenges, but I also think, and I could be wrong, I'm just hypothesizing here and correct me if I've got it wrong, but I think sometimes we we can fear holding on to happiness or we can almost worry about focusing that and enjoying that there because there's a fear that we may lose it. Yeah, well, you got it. Ding, 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 ding. You yeah. won. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, I hear this stuff every day of the week where it almost becomes impossible to joy or to enjoy the big moments because it's a fear of losing them. Yeah. The, mm. the mortality, I think, just starts creeping in. It's at least yeah. for me, mortality has become a very daily 
presence in my life. And it's not just about the fear of dying. Like that's, that's very abstract and kind of obvious. Everyone has that. It's the fear of losing, dying, happiness, dying in bits, you know, like that thing that I love now is going to be gone one day. This person that I love now is going to be gone one day. It's like, instead of appreciating it now, I find myself looking past their existence. Absolutely. I mean, you probably heard of a guy, he's a a great writer called Michael Singer. I don't know if you're aware of Michael Singer. He wrote that, he wrote that beautiful book, The Untethered Soul. And he talks often about that, you know, it's, it's our attachments Mm-hmm. to these things you know we attached we attach to the difficult stuff but we also attach to the other stuff with the fear of losing them and actually inadvertently we just end up experiencing and not enjoying very much right. because we just become we're just so fixated on trying to hold on mm-hmm. to things when actually that the, you know second book is 10 times happier and i talk a lot about that you know the getting in the way of our own happiness it's you know it, it's kind of getting in the way of the natural flow of just allowing Allowing today to unfold if it's going to, if today's an amazing day and you're on top of the world and things are going great, what would it be like just to allow that to be and experience it mm-hmm. without mm. conditions, no conditions around it. If it goes the other way and today's a bit of a shitstorm and things are difficult and it's full of challenges, um, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's a bad day. It just means, okay, this is the day that I'm dealing with today and I will allow this to teach me and I will allow, you know, allow myself to work with it rather than work against it. So all of this sometimes can feel quite counterintuitive because you're going in the opposite direction. Right. You know, we, we, we want to fight back. We want to control it, you know, going back to the intolerance of uncertainty. We want to control everything when actually right. we don't have the control. That, well, that's the bottom line. It, it feels like the best way to live is to be a Buddhist without being a Buddhist. <laughs> Just take all the good things. It, it, it Earthly pleasures, possessions, money, and Buddhist mentality. Can take, you have that? Is that good, possible? Take all the good things, but also allow the bad things to, to be part of it as well. And the challenges, and maybe don't even label them good and bad. Maybe it's just, they all become, right. okay, this is, this is a, this is an experience today and I'm working with it. And again, you know, this is, this is what good therapy I think is about, you know, therapy has to be the right type of talking. You're not there to ruminate and to tell your story over and over again, or just to be heard. It's way, way more than that. Good therapy has to be about, you know, challenging, you know, helping somebody understand the mechanics of their life. But outside of that, it's also about the decisions you make, the boundaries that you create, the people you surround yourself with the habits that you create in your life. You know, good therapy for me is a, it's a complete overhaul of your life and being able to take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. Not expecting just a weekly chat to work it all out for you. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's like, no, it's got to be more than that. The weekly chat is just a part of the the mm-hmm. equation. You work hard. Certainly if you come to me, you work hard in that weekly chat, but the majority of the work goes on then between what happens in the session. And that means that you take responsibility for your life and you think, okay, this is the stuff that's working. Mm. This is the stuff that ain't working. And that means being open to change. It's like getting a postgraduate degree in yourself. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I was cooking an analogy too, but yours is funnier. <laughs> oh, you had a- <laughs> Mine was that the weekly session is like a weekly workout. You work out all your muscles. And the whole point with working your muscles is that they continue to burn calories or whatever during the week when you're not working out, right? When you're resting. That's oh, not bad. Mine's better. Yours is way better. Okay. <laughs> So speaking of, you know, therapy working for some people and maybe people ruminating, I'm I'm really looking for a segue here. What advice would you give to someone who has tried talk therapy for years, but has felt that they've had little result? 
I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it, well, you're with the wrong therapist, first okay. of all. Okay. Wow. I love, we love a black and white answer. Because, you know, look, the evidence with therapy is good. You know, let's be honest yeah. about it. The, the evidence is pretty decent. I'm not saying that it's a be all and end all. Some people might need a combination of therapy and medication. There's no right or wrong to that. And it's mm -hmm. very often individual context. But I think if it ain't working and you've been like, if you've been in therapy for years and you're not making breakthroughs, then you're not in good therapy for you. That doesn't mean that you're with a bad therapist. Yeah, it's not. A, it's not about laying responsibility on the therapist, but it's about stopping to think about okay, is this the right, right relationship? Sometimes clients come to me, and I think they're expecting a nice little cup of tea. And you know, my dad thinks that's. My dad still says to me, "What is it you do?" He still doesn't understand. And I, I asked him the other week. I said, "What is it you think I do?" He said, "Oh, you." He said, "You talk to people and have a nice cup of tea with them." You know, that's, that's, that's my dad's. Um, that's my dad's understanding of therapy. Andy, I'm going to admit that my hair is a security blanket for me. Yeah, a little bit for me too. Yeah, we like having the thick hair, hair healthy good. hair, it's all nice. the things. It's not necessary, but it is nice. It is. And that's why we are such big fans of Nutrafol, mm -hmm. which you've got right there in your hands. My little buddy. <laughs> yeah, you even travel with that. You don't travel with a bottle, but you, you then you put the pills in a little baggie that you travel with. I don't put them in one baggie. It depends on the length of the trip. <laughs> okay. Pardon me. Sorry. In multiple baggies, depending on the length of the yeah, trip. As a matter of fact, half my medicine bag when I go through TSA is basically <laughs> little baggies of Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement. Clinically proven to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. Yeah. Who doesn't want some of that, right? Yeah. Am I, mean, I the only one? Like, I'm, I'm admitting it. No, you're not it. the only one. Okay. I literally get inundated all day with hair growth ads. I'm not kidding you. Every day that goes by, at least a dozen new hair growth things hit me somewhere. Mm -hmm. And this is the number one dermatologist recommended one of all in this sea, this morass yes. of hair growth products. Mm -hmm. This is the number one dermatologist recommended one. Yeah. And Nutrafol works by targeting the five root causes of hair thinning. And those are Andy. Stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism. <laughs> five. <laughs> five out of five. And I love how Nutrafol has three unique formulas mm -hmm. for women at different stages in their life. I mean, because it's not one size fits all. They have their regular one and then they have postpartum and menopause. And then a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. Six months. That's not bad. This is very For hair? Good. That's how long it takes hair to cycle. Yeah. I learned that. To see different things in your hair. Yeah, that's the thing yeah. about hair products, hair growth stuff. Six months. Yeah. And it's pretty impressive. 86%. For, for a product like this? 86%. That's 43 out of 50 people. That's, that's pretty 21 good. 21 and a half out of 25 people. <laughs> Want to go even further with that, Andy? That's <laughs> the 10.75 <laughs> out of 12 and a half people. That's a happy 10.75 people. So you can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering promo code DEARSHANDY to save $10 off your first month's subscription. This offer is only available to U.S. customers and for a limited time. Plus free shipping on every order. Again, that's $10 off at Nutrafol.com, N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code DEARSHANDY. So Andy, I have in my hands the best shave foam I have ever used in my life. And look what I have in my hand, the Athena Razor Kit that comes with the razor, mm -hmm. a spare blade, yes, and the handy-dandy holder that you just slap onto your wall. Yeah, the I mean, this thing is, oh, I'm going to eat it. I'm just going <laughs> to eat it. I'm tired of this. 
the super duper cute magnetic hook that sticks to your wall. And by the way, we have one in the upstairs shower. We we keep this one as a prop for our ads, but we really do have another one, a black one. And it is stuck to the wall with this adorable magnetic hook. Why don't you show everyone, Andy? Just connects like so. Mm, that is satisfying. Hands free. What would you pay for this box? So at $40? <laughs> I mean, I would have guessed that that would be around 20 bucks. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> this whole thing can be yours for $10. Amazing. $10. What do you get for $10 anymore? Very, can't even get a drink for $10. I, you can't get two lattes for $10. And it makes your bathroom look better, it, not worse. And honestly, our upstairs bathroom looks better. I don't know. It looks more grown up. It was what this. we needed. It was the missing element <laughs> in that bathroom. And I love that the blade itself has water activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid. So, you know, it's doing good things. I mean, you've said that's the best shaving experience you've had. Without a question. I am not kidding. I look forward. I look forward to shaving. This is not something I've ever looked forward to in my life. I kid you not. I used that razor right before we recorded these ads. So show your skin you care with the Athena Club razor kit. Head to athenaclub.com and use code DEARSHANDY to get 25% off your first order. Again, that's athenaclub.com and use code DEARSHANDY for 25% off. Athena Club has also launched in Target stores nationwide, so be sure to check out the shaving aisle to buy their products in store in real life. Okay, so with the idea of you know, playing therapist to yourself, maybe on the days in between, or let's say, you know, like we said early on, maybe you just find it too daunting. You're just not taking that step. Let's say someone's having an anxious episode or they struggle with anxiety day to day. What advice would you, would you give them? It's so misunderstood, you know, so most people try to think their way out of anxiety. You know, they mm. try to, when they're in anxious day, they try to use their brain to kind of try and resolve the problem for them. But when you're in an anxious state, particularly when you're in a kind of an acute anxious state, your body's in a state of alarm and a state mm -hmm. of threat. And when the physical body's held in a state of threat, so if you hold anxiety in your chest, your throat, your tummy, and you're staying with it and you're stewing on it, then it will send a signal to the brain, okay, there's a problem. So the brain will stay in this hypervigilant state of, you know, alert. And then, of course, the brain likes the story. It will try and make sense of why am I anxious? It will create a narrative. So then the thoughts start to come one thought after another, after another, and then suddenly many thoughts and we feel overwhelmed. So one of the ways of short circuiting that is, is to start with the physical body instead of trying to rationalize it or think your way out of it. I'll always say to people, okay, let's deactivate the sense of threat in the body initially. Let's just go to the part where you're feeling the anxiety. I teach people how to ground and that's literally they might use breath work. They might use focus on a sensation or a part of the body. So basically you're training the mind. All these neural pathways are highly actively working when they don't need to be. So you're really quieting the activity and the noise in the brain. And when you teach people how to deactivate the sense of threat in the body, then they allow another part of the brain prefrontal cortex, which is more rational measured you know, it won't work when you're in a state of high alert. It won't operate because it thinks there's an emergency. This mm -hmm. is not a time to be right. rational. But then when you deactivate the alarm through the body and it switches off, the prefrontal cortex will then activate and allow you to then think your way out of the situation or talk yourself down. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the other important thing to say there as well is your instinct will be this is, you know, this feeling is bad. It's wrong. I don't want it. I want to get rid of it. I want to push it away. You're going the opposite direction. So when the anxiety moves in, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, this is okay. 
think of nieces or nephews or if you you know if you if you were looking after younger kids if they were highly anxious or distressed around you you wouldn't i would imagine you wouldn't feel the need to say to him go away i don't want to help you <laughs> uh, yeah. once in a while well maybe but yeah mostly <laughs> not but you know you wouldn't your, your instinct would be to go and go and comfort and help them but and i guess it's with, with our own anxiety it's a bit like that you know mm-hmm. rather than i don't want you this is wrong i shouldn't be feeling this it's a kind of all right this is okay I'm not going to run from this. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to work against it. It's uncomfortable and I'm going to acknowledge that, but I'm not going to deny the experience. And then you sit with it and not immediately for some people, when you give yourself permission to have the feeling, it can almost, you know, bring the anxiety down a few notches because there's yeah. relief. It's interesting. You you were talking about the grounding and it's all my life. People have said, you know, take a deep breath. I'm generally an anxious person, so I've gotten that a lot. People mm-hmm. have said, take a deep breath to me many times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's so interesting. I always thought of that as a figure of speech until yeah. the last few years when I actually know that just focusing on the breathing in a certain way actually takes you out of that moment. And I personally have discovered that the only way for me to reverse kind of that panic loop mm-hmm is to start with the rhythmic breathing and to relax every muscle in my body. So that brings me to my question. Very good. Do you have any actionable tips? So like you feel yourself panicking, you feel yourself in this heightened anxious state. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I mean, for some people, it's always a stop. That's the kind of non-negotiable. So you, you, you're stopping. So that's that's a non-negotiable in whatever way you can. If you're in a situation, you just need to go out to the loo or just need to go somewhere private, then you do that. So you just allow yourself to stop. And then your next goal is to create space between what's going on in the overactive mind mm-hmm. and what's actually happening. So to do that, it's almost, I describe it sometimes to clients, like think of it almost like stepping into a helicopter. And what you're going to do is you're going to allow yourself to almost step into that helicopter and pull back so that rather than being immersed in the feeling, what you're going to do is you're going to be aware of it. So you're going to look down in on it mm. and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be aware of what's happening. So the next stage is then, you know, the awareness of what you're feeling, whether it's panic or anxiety or dread, whatever the context might be. Then the next step is about allowing that to be. So being very, very conscious, you're not going to resist, you're not going to run, you're not going to push it away. It's uncomfortable, it, you know, it's not a desired feeling, but actually you're going to allow it to be because immediately then you're going to help deactivate the heightened emotional state. So when it comes to grounding, then I teach breath work a lot for clients. But interestingly, what we know is that some people don't like breath work. So they find the focus on the breath, particularly if they're panic. Think, oh my God, if I think about my breath, I'm going to get more panic. <laughs> so if, if, if breathing works, great, use it because regulate a breathe. And I use it, you know, you've heard the technique four, five, eight. So that's when you breathe yeah. in for four, mm-hmm. four for five, out for eight. So a really powerful technique. But what I'd say is if, if, if breathing doesn't work for you, don't panic about that because what you can then do is, you know, do something like, okay, bring your focus of attention to your hands. Mm. So just let the breath be, just let it do what it's going to do. And then you'll notice things like heat, tingling, Sometimes cramps, sometimes they can feel quite soft. It'll, it'll vary. But then what you're doing is you're doing similar to what you're doing with regulated breathing. You're bringing point of focus to one area. Mm. So if you're not if you're not keen on the, the, the breathing thing, take it to a point of focus, your hands, your feet or a body part. And you just bring focus to that area and you will notice sensations coming up. And then the mind will go off and tell a story. And you, when you notice the mind's going off to tell a story, you pull it back. It will go off again. You pull it back. And I guess really 
that's training the anxious mind to slow down. Because if you think of all of the neural pathway activities going on when you're anxious, every time you call it back and say, no, 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 we're not doing that at the moment, you're then slowing down the neural pathway activity. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the goal scientifically. Neuroscientifically, that's what you're trying to do. Is you're trying to create a, a greater sense of order so that we quieten down all of the noise and the activity that's going on in the mind. What's an unfortunate side effect of that is that I find that looking at my phone is a cheap trick to stop panic and i hate it like i do i use it as a last resort i'm just like oh god damn it i gotta look at my phone and i'll start looking at my phone and suddenly i'll get lost my phone i'll forget what i was my phone gives me more and it's not good but it works sometimes there's a there's a study coming out uh, this might be helpful actually the phone's probably not the best there's a study coming out (laughs) in in a few weeks and i heard gabor mate talking about this recently hasn't been published but i think it's about to be published they they got a whole team of psychologists and neurologists and psychiatrists, all sorts of people to monitor elite athletes who were on a training course for a few days. And they were looking at their blood pressure, what was going on in their mind, their anxiety levels, cortisol. They were measuring all sorts of stuff with them. And they discovered that every four hours, there was an adverse situation going on with most of the athletes. So it was either blood pressure was going up a bit, stress levels were increasing, mood was dropping, and they were intrigued about these changes that were happening every four hours. So they went to the organizers of the event and they said, we're just really interested that we have noticed detrimental changes in most of the participants, but it was only happening every four hours. Oh no, I know what's coming. So they got the schedule and they said, what happens every four hours? And they said, they have a break and they get Uh, a phone. Oh God. I mean, the phone does make me more anxious. It makes me more anxious in my whole life. But in the moment, it can bring me down because I just all it is. It's a crux. Uh, It's a crutch. I mean, because you are you are taking your whole life into this one stupid little thing. Uh, Absolutely. You can get a hit of distraction from whatever you're worrying about. But you're paying for it in the long run because it's causing more damage over time. You're trading your future for your present as as a fix. And uh, Um, it makes me, it makes me, I physically feel disgusted with myself every time I look at the phone for the reason of getting out of the moment. I'm like, oh, I have to worry about this thing. I have to make a decision about this. Oh, I'm like feeling panicky. Like my heart was racing. Oh, I'm going to do this. And I feel disgusted by myself. Which I know it's going to work. Yeah, but but replace it. It'll work. Yeah, it'll give you short term distraction, but longer term it feeds into other unhelpful patterns. Cancer. So I'd say replace it with something different. Replace it with something else more helpful. Mm -hmm. What? What's? What do you got? I mean, what, what, what I, I got a lot. But, you know, what, what what I'll do very often is if I've got a gap between clients or between interviews or whatever I'm doing, but what I'll do is I live quite close to a park. I've got my dog with me. I'll take him out for a walk. I'll grab a coffee. I'll take a walk around the park and I'll hmm. deliberately, no phone, no contact. Hmm. I'll make that just about getting out and breaking it up. I'll then plan, okay, finish the end of the working day. What will I do? Okay, I'm going to go for a run this evening. It's a really nice day in London. I'll go for a run this evening. Make sure that's part of my day. So I've got much better and I've learned this the hard way. I've got much, my supervisor used to really challenge me about not scheduling. He challenged me years ago and I was, yes, one particular point, I was stressed and I had a lot going on. I was trying to do too many things. I was writing books, promoting books, doing talks, loving what I was doing, but actually too much at one time. And he said to me, where's the self-care stuff? And it was really interesting for me. And I kind of thought, oh, don't really have a lot of time for that at the minute. Hmm. And he said, what do you mean you haven't got time for that at the minute? He said, it's your job. And I said, no, 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 I get it. And and I believe in this stuff wholeheartedly. And he said, your self-care is your job. 
Mm. It is your work because when you do that, he said, you then show up better for your clients, for your family, mm. for the people in your life and for the work that you do. And he said, none of that bullshit. Self-care is your job. This That's is my job. And my yeah. So <laughs> it's I selfish. It, it's selfish yeah. of you not to care about yourself more. <laughs> yeah. But, but this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, the Irish Catholic shame voice in me would, would hear that sort of, oh, no, 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 get on with it. You know, yeah. get don't over worry. There are, there, there are people, <laughs> yeah, there are people worse <laughs> off than you. You know, that whole Irish narrative plays sure, out yeah. where it would, I would see it as selfish or self indulgent, whereas mm -hmm. actually, no, I've got much better. It's like, actually, no, this is a part of my job. This right. And this enables me to do my job. Mm. Wow. So speaking of jobs, I'm sort of changing the subject here. You had a former job for 10 years in palliative care. Yeah, mm. that's correct. Yeah. Um, what was your, I'm just very, that to me, that's like a very yeah. intense 10 years. When I told Andy about this with your resume, he was like, oh, I have yeah. questions. <laughs> what was your biggest takeaway from that? And did you find it pressing for the most part or inspiring and how or in what ways did it possibly change your yeah. feelings about the end of life about the end of your life it's a huge question but it's an important question i mean i never never ever found it depressing which is mm. interesting wow. not once in the, the 10 years it was never i think people have that notion that we, when you're in an arena like that that it's going to be awful but actually all of life continues, you know, and, and good, good, you know, palliative care isn't about dying. It's about living while dying, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, so it was always about helping people to get the best from their life and stuff. But the, the interesting thing was, and, and look, every story was different. You know, everyone's story was, you know, everyone's narrative was different. And, and I guess when I was doing that work, I was doing it from a medical perspective, not psychology, even though 80% of the challenges are psychology, mm -hmm. you're coming from a medical model, which is why I ended up going off to, to train as a psychotherapist because I felt, yeah, I didn't feel I had the skills to do the job well. So that's actually what brought me down mm. the kind of psychology route. So that's how I ended up doing what I do now. But it, I, I guess really, I was always struck by the importance of hope. I talk loads and loads of my work about the importance of hope. And what I realized was that even in the most awful, tragic circumstances, sometimes that, you know, hope was just a hugely important thing. And even if that was just kind of someone getting to go to the local park with their kid for the day and having a nice time with them, or it was just getting to go to the local coffee shop and do something nice or, you know, make it to their son's wedding or whatever the context might be. Hope was a really, really important ingredient for most people. And and it really struck me about how important that is in everyday life generally, that, you know, we all we need hope. But it was also about, you know, you were constantly, constantly, you know, you could be if I was working in a hospice, you know, you could be three o'clock in the morning and you were set with somebody. Sometimes they could be your age, you know, with somebody your your age group and you're working with them and and you just end up having these conversations and this automatic wisdom would just flow sometimes because I guess when someone's faced with mortality, then they stop and they evaluate and they look at their lives and they come up very, very, not all of the time, but very often with with the wisdom about making the best of life. I, you know, and I, I noticed patterns or I would never, ever hear people talk about how much money they earned ever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Never heard people talk about how much they'd achieved or their academic achievements or their awards or what they've done. I always, always was struck by people talking about time they'd spent with people Mm -hmm. or holidays they'd had or experiences or maybe aspects of their work. But I really got struck by the fact, God, the things that matter aren't the things that we value. 
And mm. I was really, really struck by that. If you look at how we're driven in life about achievement, success, blah, blah, blah. Very often what you'd hear is kind of when it comes to it, actually, that really doesn't matter that much. And that really was a huge wake up call. So I'd go into work some days and like everybody else, you know, you'd be thinking, oh, God, I've got to do my car tax and I'm changing my mortgage at the minute and the dog needs to go to the vets. And so you'd be all kind of, you know, riled up by these list of everyday worries. And then I'd go into work and I'd, you know, I'd meet somebody or I would be working with somebody who had suddenly become more unwell. And then this kind of immediate wake up on perspective would come in where it's like, actually, this is this is not important. This has just come to mind. So I'll share it. I remember I was working in a hospice many, many years ago and I think it was like a Friday night or something. And I'd done a shift and this particular shift, I think seven people had died within that, which is very unusual for seven people to have passed away on, on it. And I was in charge that day and I was running the shift and we had seven people die. So that was not only dealing with the seven people, but their families and stuff. And, you know, it was it was really intense. Yeah. And I can remember driving home from work that evening and I drove past a bar and everyone was drunk and, you know, the music was playing really, really loud. And I noticed there were four guys on the road and they were having a fight <laughs> and the police were there and it was just crazy. And I had this moment where I wanted to stop the car and I wanted to get out and say, if you've seen what I've seen today, you wouldn't mm-hmm. be doing this. Mm. This, so this, true. to be fair and to be honest I think very often and I'm sure anyone who works in this arena I think you often receive more than you give when you work in those areas any of these things when you're involved in people's lives whether it's them telling their story or whether working with them when they're coming to the end of their life that's a privilege to to be for someone to trust you in that moment but right. actually to be alongside them you know unless you're unconscious you can't do that work and not be impacted the key takeaways were really about, you know, stopping, really stopping in your everyday life. Um, perspective, you know, not being afraid to look at yourself, but also not being afraid to take responsibility for your life and the decisions you're making and how you live it. Because I guess, you know, you're reminded constantly in these arenas that, you know, we we aren't here, you know, we aren't here for a long time. We're We're here for a period. And and living that life fully as much as we can and making it matter, you know, making it driven by purpose and value and all of these things that that is important. And relationships, you know, and connection, all of these things that we sometimes neglect, they are so, so more important, I think, than we realize. And we just lose sight of it in the everyday craziness of our lives. I, I often feel really honored and privileged that I got that time in my life and I got that experiences because it does shape hopefully shape my work in a very positive way mm. I hope you really should you should write a movie I mean just the nun and and the uh, lords alone <laughs> is you could just just build yeah. off that yeah okay Owen okay thank you so much for, for spending thank you. And, thank you. And, and we're just so grateful that you yeah. could make time for us today thank you thank you and I've really genuinely enjoyed every second of this conversation it's been lovely thank you for making me so welcome because it's always quite daunting when you come on a new podcast or a new show and stuff it's always like oh god I hope because you're always thinking about the dynamic and you know yeah. I, I, <laughs> you true. want it to go well and I kind of thanks so thank you for making it really easy and, and that oh. lovely conversation well, so you, thank you oh you likewise. made it easy for us thank you so much have a you're great very rest welcome. of your day thank you okay yeah. you good night Ooh. oh man those are the kind of talks that when they end I'm sad oh 
Andy, that's so yeah. sweet. I could tell the two of you connected. We did. I had so many. I didn't scratch <laughs> the surface of where I wanted to go. I didn't think it was appropriate for the podcast. I think it's appropriate for sitting back with um, some Irish whiskey. Yeah. Or and, tea. Yeah. Or tea. Or tea. Yeah. Or tea. No, it became a time constraint towards the end. But yeah, I felt like you had some existential... I did. I had so many. And the Irish, as I was touching on, the Irish really, they are the masters of existentialism. I mean, the French, they say the French, I know, you know, you got your Sartre and your Camus, but when it really comes to the average person in the country Mm. being existentialist, I think Ireland wins. Okay. Wow. I think he has such a neat perspective on happiness in general i mean he's written books on it like literally his books are called 10 times happier and 10 to zen you can really tell that his opinions his thoughts his perspectives are colored by something Mm -hmm. i mean he had a really hard first chapter of his life first several chapters of his life yeah and then he went into work with something very hard that he turned into roses for his development Mm mm-hmm you were really into his Catholic nun therapist story. Oh my God, how funny was that? <laughs> how funny is that? He literally is going to come out of the closet to a therapist uh-huh. and it's a nun. <laughs> and a Catholic nun, a the, Catholic the religion that, nun. yeah, that has inflicted him it's with all like this the shame in the first place. the worst person he could imagine to come out to. And then he goes to Lourdes and he to de-gay himself. <laughs> And he's got these two hot, muscular guys dunking him in water. I could just imagine, like, the water's, like, glistening. It's, like, rolling off their big, muscled shoulders. And you hear, like, Ario Speedwagon or something. It's like, and I can't fight that feeling anymore. And obviously slow motion. Uh, Obviously. You know, I don't know if I would have found that as funny. Like, I would have found it more, like, sad, I guess. But you're right. It is funny. It's hilarious. Yeah. What is comedy again? Tragedy plus time. Yeah. Tragedy plus time. Yeah. And it's, it's, look, he... And who's laughing now? I mean, he's he's living his best life. No no harm done. Uh, Yeah. All those things ended up being good. Yeah. So we can laugh at them now. Yeah. Amazing. Maybe the funniest thing... I've ever heard in the life story of one of our guests since we started this podcast. No, you're right. It is. It's co- sheer it's comedy. comedy. It's yeah. almost so funny. It's like it's like if you wrote that, you'd be like, "That's a little hacky." Like, take it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just make it a little more far. nuanced. A little yeah. more nuanced. Yeah. Too obvious. That's why he has to make a movie. Has to just based around that. Yeah. That's how a lot of movies are made. It's just like you smell something. And you're like, I want to make a movie based. On that. Just work off that smell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a bad example. Smell. I don't think any movie's ever been made off a of smell. <laughs> okay. You're, you got to be a great director. You'd be like, oh, I envision fields of French lavender. It was interesting, his perspective on therapy being a temporary thing, because I feel like depending on who you talk to, and maybe this is the more a more American perspective, I don't know if everyone would see it that way over here. The mm. idea that, you know, five years is like too short a time or something. It's like the idea that you you want to get to the point where you don't need the person anymore. Because, I mean, I think a lot of people see therapy that way, but I also think some people are just like, I have a therapist and this is just, right. it's ongoing. Well, I guess like it's, exercise. It's like comparing it to, you know, the I think I made an example about getting a postgraduate degree in yourself. Yeah. I mean, you do end the degree and go out to the workforce at some point. You're <laughs> yeah. not going to be in school forever. Yeah. So the idea is you teach a man to fish. You know, you eventually learn how to fish and there will be some days where you don't catch fish. Yeah. But you know how to fish now. So you know how to handle those days. Yeah. Just do better the next day. 
That'd be more fish. And maybe when you can't remember how to fish or you are fishing, but there's no fish to be found, then you can call up your therapist that you haven't spoken to in a yeah. while and be like, oh, hey. Yeah. Well, he's no longer a therapist. Now he's like a fishing instructor. <laughs> <laughs> Fully the fisherman. <laughs> or is it fly fishing? <laughs> Yeah, me too. It looks cool. Yeah. We should do that. What's we stopping us? We should go fly us? fishing. We need to live our lives. I feel yeah. motivated and inspired. More fly fishing. <laughs> well, that was delightful. Mm-hmm. Again, the book is How to Be Your Own Therapist by Owen O'Kane. It was a good one. I, I love watching you connect with certain guests. I like I it, like it too. It doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen. I could tell that you guys had a, there was a, yeah, a something. It happened. It was cute. Okay, if you enjoyed what you heard today, you know what we will ask of you, and that is to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Leave us Apple and Spotify podcast ratings and reviews. Tell your friends and generally do all the things you would do to support a podcast you enjoy. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Dear Shandy. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.